Good evening again, friends. Just wanted to take a moment and just uh, praise God for all the things that He is doing in our church and what we are testifying about tonight. Uh, can we just give Him a round of applause? Yes, it's amazing. I, I think it's important that we celebrate. You know, that we take moments to celebrate, take the time to celebrate what God has done, and uh, it's amazing. I'm just I'm so excited to see what God's going to continue to do uh, the rest of this year. Uh, and I'm, I'm excited to see how God is going to continue to use this series that we've been in this summer and the next series that we're launching into in just a couple weeks. Um, God has been moving in my life through this series this summer, and I pray he's been working in your life too. Uh, this evening, we're beginning episode 11 of our series, Wanderers and Wrestlers. And the title of this sermon is Wrestling the Scars of the Past. It's interesting, scars and wounds tell stories. You know, physical scars, ailments and wounds, they tell stories of past memories or past pain or difficulty. They're physical markers. And we tell stories oftentimes based upon these things, depending on whether or not we feel comfortable of the pain and the difficulty and how we've processed and moved through it. There's a couple funny scars or wounds that I have. When I was a, a child, I was really into aggressive inline skating. Anyone else here in the room into that? There was a brief moment, for the older millennials, we know this, there was a brief moment where rollerblading was like bigger than skateboarding. So I was, I was deep. I mean, I was real deep, guys. I was in it. I, w I got sponsored by this like local uh, skate park. And I remember thinking it was the coolest thing ever because I got free entry and free surge. Remember that energy drink? Oh, man. It was like a kid's dream. I'm drinking surge. It's free entry. I'm skating. But I have these wounds now on my shins where all the scar tissue from these hairline fractures of falling on rails have built up. So every time I get like sore, you know, I'm getting older and I rub my legs and I remember like, oh, these are like real wounds, and it takes me back to the time of drinking way too many energy drinks and riding the half pipe. The other thing that is, some of you know this about me, this one. Um, growing up my whole life, I played, you know, different sports, but football was my main sport. And I loved playing football, played down here in South Florida, and I played receiver. And one of the things that happens to receivers in football is that you hurt your hands a lot, your fingers. So my fingers, I've broken or torn ligaments in every single one of my fingers. And so, yeah, don't come after the service and tell me how bad football is, okay? I know, it's very violent, okay? I already know, we have like half the room's doctors. I understand, okay? It's, gonna, it's only going to get worse right now, okay? So playing football uh, and breaking all my fingers, um, I have this, this wound, this issue now, which is whenever I close my fingers, my knuckles crack. Okay, check this out. I don't know if you can pick it up on the mic. All I'm going to do is close my fingers. Watch. <laughs> Doctors, close your ears, okay? Forget that happened, okay? But it's interesting, right? We, some of these have these, we have these scars, we have these wounds, we have these ailments, and they, they take us back. They're, they're memories, and they teach us lessons, too. Some of you are like, yeah, teach lessons like don't let your kids play football, you know? We're not having that conversation either, okay? But they teach us lessons and they're markers and reminders. And some of us in the room have actually decided to physically mark our bodies to teach lessons and to remind us, i.e. with tattoos. I have a tattoo on the inside of my arm here, which I thought about for 10 years. 
I prayed about my tattoo. I thought about it for 10 years. And it comes from um, this verse in Scripture where it says in 2 Peter that by his wounds we are healed. It's always resonated with me deeply when I came to faith in college that through the wounds of Jesus, we are healed. And so I, had, I worked with a designer here in Miami, and I took my favorite, one of my favorite trees in the world, which is a, a cedar of Lebanon, has a, a lot of biblical uh, significance. Uh, the cedar of Lebanon represents healing and eternity. And so I, I crafted a, a tattoo that is behind the cross is a cedar of Lebanon, which the book of um, Revelation and other passages speak about the cedars of Lebanon being in heaven. And so the tattoo for me represents that by Jesus' wounds, I'm healed eternally. And this is meaningful to me because every time I look at it, it teaches me a lesson. It reminds me of who God is, what he's done in my life, and what he's promised to do in the future. Genesis chapter 32, where we pick up this evening, we're going to see how God is working in Jacob's life to help him embrace the past, recognize and accept the scars and the wounds of his past so that he might step into what God has for him in the future and teach him how the path of victory comes from wrestling the scars of your past. So let me give you a quick update on where we are at. If you were with us last week, you know we left off with Jacob. He got married to two wives. One of them is the wife that he desired, Rachel, and is the other one, Leah, he was tricked into marrying. So he has two wives, and he stays now in this region with his father-in-law, Laban. He stays there for many, many years, and he has many children. He begins to have 12 children, and Laban continues to be this oppressive, tyrannical force over his life, continually exploiting him. It comes to the point to where Jacob decides to get his family together in his possessions and run away from Laban, sneak away. In the night, Laban finds out, and he is not happy about this. He took not only many possessions, but he took his grandkids, and he took his daughters, and everything, and has run away. So Laban comes after Jacob with this murderous intention to do him harm. But God protects Jacob, and Laban and Jacob have this confrontation, and they kind of agree to disagree, and they go their separate ways, and Jacob is finally now stepping into a new future. No oppressive father-in-law. The past, it feels like it's behind him. He's moving into a new land and a new territory with his family and all of his children, and then a messenger comes to him and says, hey, listen, we got some bad news. Your brother, Esau, you know the one that you escaped decades ago because he wanted to kill you? Well, he is on a battle march with 400 men coming for you right now. So now, all of a sudden, everything is not great. It's only gotten worse. So he, this is what Jacob does. He always is scheming and thinking of how he's going to fix things. He's a very self-reliant person. And so he thinks, okay, what am I going to do? He takes all of his family and his workers and his possessions, and he divides them into two camps He said, here's my strategy. I'm going to take everything, divide it in two. So when Esau gets here with the 400 men, who he's obviously here to do me harm, he's going to find one camp. That camp's going to be over, but the other camp can at least escape. That's the plan. So he does this. He takes his family with him. He separates the workers and the possessions, and then he begins to move slowly away, and they divide these camps in two. 
As he's moving and he knows that Esau with these 400 men is getting closer and closer and closer, Esau comes to this river. It's the river Jabbok, which is cut through these canyons. And he comes down to the base of the river and he tells his family and those with him to ford the river to the other side and set up camp. Now, this is at night, which, remember, at night in the Bible is always of significance. It, it has a lot of symbolism. It oftentimes symbolizes distress and difficulty is coming, which this is exactly what's going to happen. He's there on the side of the river. He tells the family, go across the river, set up camp over there, and they head across the river. Now, Jacob stays on the other side alone. And this is a significant moment because he's there, vulnerable, unprotected. There's nobody with him that could help defend him. Esau is coming, and he doesn't know how soon he's going to get there with his small army approaching. And he's now alone on this side to himself and his thoughts, probably processing how did he get here and what is going to happen when Esau gets here, not only to him, but to his family. There he is standing and processing, and there's this question that's kind of coming out of the text. Here's the question. Is Jacob ready for this encounter with Esau, and will he prevail? Remember, Jacob has been carrying this blessing that he stole, but God has promised to be faithful to him, and God has continued to show his faithfulness to Jacob, and he has all of this upon him, and God has been protecting him and blessing him, but it looks like, is that going to come to an end now? Because Esau's coming with those men. Is Jacob ready for it? Can he prevail in this situation? Every other situation where there's been conflict and adversity, what does Jacob do? He creates a scheme, he tries to deceive someone, and then he runs away. He's doing that now, but there's no way that he can make enough distance between Esau, so it's going to come to a head at some point. This is the scene back where he's on the side of the river. This question, is Jacob ready? Is he going to prevail? What's going to happen? He's there alone processing. And you know in scary movies, there's that moment where the main character makes a decision and they, they leave themselves vulnerable and you're yelling at the screen like, no, 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 bad idea. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. This is exactly what's happening here, okay? Jacob, do not stay on the other side of the river by yourself. Bad idea. There, as he's alone, a man comes out of nowhere. Now, this man is not Esau, but this man is unknown. And this man right away initiates a fight with Jacob. So you're like, okay, I knew this was going to happen. Something bad was going to happen. He left himself alone. A man comes out of nowhere, begins to fight Jacob. They're wrestling. They're battling. They're going at it. And it says that they're actually fighting and wrestling all night long. As they're fighting all night long and there's all this energy and all of this physical exertion, the sun begins to rise over the canyon. And it says that the man, when the sun begins to rise, seeing Jacob fighting with all of his strength and determination and grit, trying to prevail over this man, that the man looks at Jacob and he just touches him on the hip and dislocates his hip. And Jacob loses all of his strength. Now, there's a few things that we, we know now in the story, and Jacob is realizing this too. The first thing 
that Jacob has to be realizing, and we see as well, is that this man has allowed Jacob to fight him. He's allowed Jacob to wrestle him because if he can simply touch him in the hip and dislocate his hip, he could have done that from the very beginning. But for some reason, he allowed Jacob to battle and to wrestle all night long. Secondly, we know that this man is not an ordinary man. No one can do that unless this man is divine. And that's what the text confirms, that actually this man is not an ordinary man. This is a divine man. In fact, it's God in the form of a man who has come to initiate a fight, a wrestling match with Jacob and has allowed Jacob to fight him and to wrestle him. Jacob comes to understand this. The third thing that we see here is that not only has the man allowed Jacob to wrestle him, and not only is this man, I almost died there, <laughs> to be honest. I'll just stand on this side. It's okay. God wanted me to fight through this. Not only has this man uh, allowed Jacob to wrestle him, and not only is this man a divine man, God in the form of a man, but also... This man has taken out, this God-man has taken out a very crucial part of Jacob's strength. You see, when you dislocate your hip and your hip is out of socket, in a wrestling match, you have no strength. You have no ability to, to use all of your strength and to exert yourself any longer when your hip is out. And so Jacob has nothing left. He cannot use his physical strength any longer and exert it over this man. And so what Jacob does is he clings on. It says that he just holds on with all he has as his arms are kind of wrapped around this man's neck. And now Jacob knows exactly who this man is, that it is God in the form of a man that he's been wrestling all night. And now he has no strength and Jacob responds very differently. It changes everything in a moment when his hip comes out and he finally understands and he begins to fight or to wrestle this God-man with his words. See, the whole night Jacob says nothing. He's just determined and full of grit. He's driven. He's going to fight with his own effort. And then when his strength is gone, he's clinging. And here's what he says. I will not let go until you bless me. I will not let go until you bless me. If you don't let go, if it, I'm not, I'm not, my hands are not coming off of your neck. I'm holding on until you bless me. You see, there's a spiritual metamorphosis happening here with Jacob. His whole life has been about his drive, his ambition, his determination, his grit, his schemes, his intellect, his human effort, and now when he's in this fight of his life with this God-man, he's been fighting hours and hours all night long, he finally comes to realize that actually he has no real strength in this situation. He has to use his words. In fact, Hebrew scholars say that the way that this is written, it's not just that he's saying it with his mouth, it's that he's pleading in prayer. He's praying to God, I am not going to let go, God, until you bless me. Then God responds to Jacob in verse 27 of chapter 32. Here's what God says. He said to him, 
what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. You see here, this spiritual metamorphosis takes place because it's not simply the realization of where his true strength is found, not in his physical ability or his drive or his determination. It's in his character. It's in his words. It's in that prayer. And God there gives him a new name. Significant when God changes your name, and that's exactly what God does. He says, what is your name? And he says, Jacob. And he says, you shall no longer be called Jacob. The Hebrew says, it shall no longer be said of you that you are Jacob. He is disassociating Jacob from his past. God is reorienting Jacob away from his past. He's dealing with it, but he's pointing him to the future. You're now going to be called Israel. And Israel means wrestler with God, one who wrestles with God. He's gone through a change, quite drastic change. Remember the question I asked you to remember at the very beginning that's coming from the text, which is, is Jacob ready to encounter Esau? Is he ready for that? And will he prevail? You see, the answer was no. He's not, because Esau is coming with this army. He has this murderous intention, and there is no way Jacob can get out of this. Jacob, the entire time in his whole life, has been about his effort, his intellect, his schemes, his drive, his determination, and it will not work this time. Jacob would never prevail over Esau, but Israel will. You see, God's intention is to do something miraculous between these two brothers. But something had to happen in Jacob's life for him to actually be ready for that encounter. He had to go through this spiritual transformation, this metamorphosis where the old is gone and he is now no longer focused on his past and his past efforts and his past ways of prevailing. Now it's a new way to prevail And it's not with his own strength, actually. It's with his character and with his words, with his humility, and with his prayer. And so, here, as he experiences this, and he experiences this change in his life, he responds in verse 30 through 31, and it says, So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet, look what he says, my life has been delivered. His life's been changed, delivered. The sun rose up upon him, and he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Jacob that night is standing alone, processing how he got here. Why has this happened to him? What is going to become of him and his family as his brother is marching? That night, he wrestles this man who is not an ordinary man. It is the God-man who allows Jacob to use all of the schemes and all of the effort that has got him to where he is in his life thus far. He fights hours upon hours upon hours until he humbles Jacob by dislocating his hip. So all Jacob has now is to cling on in prayer. I will not let go until you bless me. And then God looks at Jacob and says, you are no longer Jacob. I'm reorienting your perspective from the past and I'm pointing you to the future. You are now Israel. And Jacob wakes up new. He's a new man. 
with a new name and a new limp. He has a wound that tells the story of what God did in his life. What happens in the next chapter is it says that as the sun is rising over those canyons, you see Esau. He's there that morning with those 400 men coming down. And it's this scene and the tension is building. What is going to happen? God has done something amazing in Jacob's life. But where is Esau at in all of this? And so Jacob is standing there at the base of the river. And Esau and his men are coming down the top of this mountain towards Jacob. You see, Jacob does not flee. That's what he would have done every other time. Packed up the bags, the caravan. We got to go. We got to get over the mountain. Let's try to put some distance He keeps his family there, and he begins to walk towards Esau. He's walking towards Esau with a limp. And it says as he's approaching Esau, every few steps, he's stopping and he's bowing. He's showing this sign of humility, this sign of remorse over what he did to his brother decades ago. As they get closer and closer, you have to imagine everybody is watching. He's bowed down before Esau as he's right there and Esau and Jacob meet eyes and instead of Jacob Esau pulling out a sword he gives him a hug and they weep and they reconcile you see God's intention from the very beginning was to reconcile these two brothers but in order for them to be reconciled Jacob had to become Israel Jacob and Esau would have never been reconciled But Israel and Esau can be. This is what God did in his life in this one night. You see, here in this passage, there is so much theological gold. Like, so much. I just want to give you a few reflections that we see in Jacob's life that I want to encourage you and challenge you to apply to your life because God works in your life in the same way that he worked in Jacob. Hopefully without no dislocation. Here's the first thing. Solitude has spiritual significance. Solitude has spiritual significance. You notice in the story, Jacob sends the family across the river and he's alone. He's vulnerable. He's with himself and his thoughts. And it is here in this moment that God encounters Jacob. God could have encountered Jacob at any moment along the journey. But he waits till he's alone. Why? Because there is something important and spiritually significant about solitude. Solitude opens up a pathway to God, and God encounters us in our solitude, and he invades our solitude and wrestles with us through the very things that are plaguing us. You see, when you're alone, when you're in solitude, no distractions, you're with yourself and your thoughts. Everything plaguing you in your life currently and plaguing you from your past will come to mind. And so many of us, because of that, we avoid solitude. We get anxious about thinking about being alone because we don't want to process and work through those things. Jacob puts himself in a position to deal with all of that. And that is exactly when God enters his life and wrestles him through those things. You see, our world does not prioritize solitude. There is noise everywhere. Every restaurant, every business, guess what's in the background? Music. You're going to notice, I mean, you probably know that, but you go any place, it doesn't matter, there's music playing. 
Many of us, we have headphones in our pockets, in our purses, because at any moment when we're not around noise or focus on something, we have to put something in our ears, a podcast, a song. You get in your car. What do you turn on? Music. You call somebody and you want a representative. You hit zero so many times. I just want a representative. And then you get someone and they put you on hold. And what do they play? Music. I don't know what your home life is like, but I'd venture to say that many of you, when you are home, there is sound. Music, TV, social media, a podcast playing until you go to bed. It's a noisy world that we live in. We do not prioritize solitude. And yet to remove solitude from your life, to not create moments where you send everything across the river and you just sit there alone and allow God in, has negative spiritual effects. I'm not just taking this from this passage. I mean, Jesus speaks about this time and time again. Guess what he says? When you pray, go into your room and close the door. Now, he didn't mean go into your room, close the door, turn the TV on, put some, you know, pull your phone out. There was none of that. When you go into your room and play in the first, pray in the first century, the only thing that you could possibly hear is maybe the flicker of a candle. Go into solitude and pray. Jesus not only says this, he models this. When he's with the 12 disciples in his public ministry, caring for the needs of people and proclaiming the kingdom of God, it says that he time and time again pulls away from not just the crowd, but even from his disciples to go into solitude and pray. In fact, Jesus begins and ends his public ministry with solitude. He begins his public ministry by going into the wilderness for 40 days. And he ends his public ministry in the garden where he goes away in solitude to pray. Solitude is of spiritual significance. It opens up a pathway for you not only to deal with what is plaguing you, but allow God to invade and wrestle with you through those things. It is important that we carve out time for solitude. I want to ask you a couple questions. Don't say it out loud. Just answer these in your head. What are the things in your life that are causing you right now anxiety and fear? making you anxious and fearful. Think about it. And then what are the things from your past that have been and are still causing you emotional and mental harm? Think about that. What is causing you emotional and mental harm from the scars and the wounds of your past? What is causing you anxiety and fear right now in the moment? I would venture to say that probably all of us in the room have tried different things to work through the to work through the pain, the difficulty, the wounds, and the scars. And there's so many really good things we say all the time here at Crossbridge that we advocate for counseling and for people to walk alongside of you. There's all types of methods to work through the scars and the wounds of the past. But I do want to ask this. Have you tried solitude? Have you tried just to go alone consistently and allow God in? Because this is how Jesus started and ended his ministry. It's how he lived out his ministry. It's how Jacob went through a spiritual transformation by just setting some time aside to be alone. Solitude has spiritual significance. And when you are alone and you allow God in to wrestle with you, he will reveal to you where real strength comes from. 
See, as Jacob is wrestling, he thinks that his strength is in himself, in his physical ability, in his grit, and his drive, but God humbles him and teaches him that true strength is found in prayer, specifically in wrestling prayer. Strength is found in wrestling prayer, prayer that is, is gritty and is real and is honest, Prayer like Jacob who's clinging on and saying, hey, I am not letting go until you bless me. I'm clinging on. I have no strength any longer. I'm just holding on until you bless me. And sometimes some of us feel like, I don't know if I can pray like that because I think like restful prayer is more holy and spiritually mature than wrestling prayer. That's for like kind of immaturity. And so some of us pray like this. I don't know. not calling you out. I'm just saying maybe you pray like this. Okay, God, I'm going to adore you. How Father, how art thou? You don't even know what a thou is. You just feel like, I'm supposed to use it. You put it out there. You adore God, and then you confess, and then you thank God, and then you ask God for a few things. Not too many, just a few things. Supplication. That's, that's the model acts, right? Adore, confess, thanksgiving, supplication. It's great. But we have this feeling, many of us have maybe been taught this or we felt this, that our prayers have to be like different than who we really are. They have to be kind of put together. We got to use the right language. We got to, you know, make sure that don't ask too much or just kind of don't say too much. Like as if God doesn't know what you really feel in your heart and your mind. Like we got to do it right, you know. It's a holy prayer. This is how mature people pray. They just trust in the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God and they pray these kind of restful, nice prayers. That's Trusting in the sovereignty of God, amen. Trusting in the goodness of God, amen. But that doesn't mean that you can't pray real, honest, wrestling prayers with God. Look at the scriptures. Moses wrestles with God in prayer. David, who writes most of the Psalms, is wrestling God in prayer. Habakkuk starts his book by saying, hey God, how long are you going to ignore me? The apostle Paul is pleading with God, God, are you going to remove the thorn from my side? I'm asking for you to work and to move Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, when he's in solitude and he's praying. He says, God, if it's your will, will you take this cup from me? He is wrestling with the Father so deep in prayer that it says that he's sweating blood, which is a physical condition only caused by extreme stress. Wrestling prayer, honest, real prayer where you're clinging on. See, the image with Jacob holding on to this God-man is one of a child holding on to his father's neck. He has no strength anywhere else. He's just clinging on, and he's pleading in prayer. That is true strength. Praying this honest, real, pleading prayer because God understands something, and he invites us to realize something, and that is that wrestling in prayer leads to resting. Wrestling leads to resting. Jacob wakes up a new man. He is at peace and at rest where the night before he was full of fear because wrestling leads to resting. And I want you to hear this. God does not need you to wrestle with him in prayer for his rest. You need to wrestle with God in prayer for your rest. You need to be honest and to be real and to wrestle with God in those moments of solitude because God wants to invade and wrestle you and your heart and your mind and through your strength and to transform it into the power of prayer. 
and bring you rest. You see, you should know this because the most significant relationships in life, deep friendships, the love of a spouse, of a couple, see, those relationships are so secure and there's such deep commitment that it opens up the ability for each party to be honest with one another, to really say how they feel, to wrestle through those difficult things. That's when you know you have a real friendship, when you can really wrestle with each other through things. You see, God wants you to understand that through faith in Jesus, your relationship with him is so secure, he is so committed to you, that you can wrestle with him in prayer. You don't have to put on a different persona when you come to God. You can be honest and real. You can say, God, I feel like you're not listening. Wrestle with him. Set aside that time of solitude and wrestle, and here's what God will work in your life and do for you. He will teach you, and he will wrestle with you to see that your past scars are stories of future praise. Your past scars are stories of future praise. Here's what's so interesting about this passage. When Jacob comes out of that experience with God, he walks with a limp. God doesn't heal him of that wound. Why? I think, one, it changes his approach to Esau. It actually is a part of what brings that reconciliation between Jacob and Esau or now Israel and Esau, because his approach and his posture is one of humility and of brokenness. But also because the rest of Jacob's life, he will tell the story of what God did in his life, why he has that limp, and what God has done, what he's taught him, what true strength looks like, how he felt before and how he lived before, but who he is now. And God wants to do the same thing for you. He wants you to understand that your past scars and your wounds can be future stories of praise. Not that you should downplay the pain and the trauma and the difficulty. No, you should wrestle through it with God. Work through it with God. Pray to God these honest wrestling prayers and find rest in who God is and what he's doing in your life and what he has for you in the future. Those past scars and wounds are meant to be stories of praise. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. Notice, the power of Christ works through when you boast about your weaknesses. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, the hardships, the persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ for when I am weak, then I am strong. Strength is not found in hiding, in disassociating, in trying to just create noise in your life so you never process. No, strength is found in weakness. In, it, in working through and allowing God to meet you in your solitude, to find a path of victory through wrestling prayer with him so that your past scars and wounds can be stories of praise. That is what God does for Jacob and what he has promised to do for you. Don't run from your scars and your wounds. Work through them with God and then praise God for them when he delivers you because he will deliver you. I want you to hear this. When Jesus rose from the dead, he rose with scars. 
he rose with the holes in his hands and his feet and his side. Why? Because they are stories. It's a story of praise of what he has done for us. And your scars and your wounds can be the same because he's promised to deliver. Set aside solitude. Wrestle with God in prayer. And trust that he will work in and through you to bring about victory and healing and stories of praise through those scars and wounds. Here's what the psalmist says. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. Not some, all of them. Would you come to God that way, believing that? That when you wrestle with him, when you cry out to him, when you allow him to invade your life and your mind and your heart in solitude, he will deliver you from all of your troubles. Because that's who God is. Amen? Will you pray with me? God, we are grateful for who you are. It is amazing that you are a God that loves and serves and cares for us the way that you do. What a blessing. Lord, I pray right now just a simple prayer for us, your people, your children. I pray that we would humble ourselves before you, that we would take wisdom from your word, that we should set aside time to be alone with you, and yes, even alone with ourselves and our thoughts. I pray that you would meet us and invade those moments to wrestle with us through those wounds and those scars of the past so that you might then reorient us to the future, revealing to us and providing for us healing and deliverance. We believe this, God. We trust this. We claim this, that when the righteous cry out, God, you hear us. And you deliver us from all our troubles. Thank you that this is who you are, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.